Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed the rest of the world. And this is our last time together before Christmas. Uh, So if it's okay with all of you, I'm going to have a festive look at a word. Yeah, we're going to have a laugh, a festive celebratory podcast by looking at one word, and that word is reform. Now, as you know, in this podcast, we uh, reflect and try and delve deep in relation to a whole range of ubiquitous terms in British politics, the centre ground, modernisation, hard left, all the kind of terms that uh, we kind of deploy all the time. And one of the things we try and do here is sort of examine what it really means and the scale of the imprecision. And spoiler alert, the scale of imprecision with all these terms is monumental and nowhere more so in relation to reform. So I'm going to talk about that for a bit. And then um, we go to a few of your questions, questions that reflect some of the epic themes we've been talking about here on the podcast together over recent weeks. So a lot to get through as ever in our time together. Now, the reason I'm reflecting on reform is because the word has gone out from number 10 that Rishi Sunak sees a reform of the NHS as a solution, uh, certainly by the time of the next general election, as a way of delivering, given the massive backlog and so on. He is looking at reform. And there have been a number of admiring columns saying, at last, uh, people like Sunak are returning to the theme of reform of the NHS. At the same time, uh, Labour's Shadow Health Secretary, Wes Streeting, has been hailed for acknowledging that reform is required. Wes Streeting gave a talk to Policy Exchange last week where again he was widely praised for saying he is under no illusion when the cliché is applied that the NHS is the envy of the world, given the number of challenges it faces. And a lot of columnists said, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. At least someone is thinking of reform. Uh, It's Wes Streeting, why aren't more Tories thinking of reform? And there, number 10, a briefing, oh, Rishi, very much onto the issue of reform. We can widen it uh, further. Uh, George Osborne, when reflecting on the year and the challenges ahead, said, uh, what's happened to reform of the NHS? We did it in the coalition, but it's it's out of fashion. We're, we're, what's happened to reform? And uh, he was doing that on the Andrew Neil show, and Ed Balls was next to him, nodding about that, though adding... Uh, because uh, Ed Balls is more forensic than a lot of these people, that investment is also an issue. But reform, this ubiquitous word in British politics, I predict is going to be a big theme uh, in the early months of uh, next year in relation specifically to the NHS. Um, The NHS needs reform. Reform is back on the agenda. But let's 
explore what is meant by this ubiquitous term. Who, anywhere across the political spectrum, is against a reform of the NHS? I pose that question uh, because, for example, it can be no surprise that any Labour politician from uh, West Streeting to well to the left of the Labour Party will be seeking some reforms of the NHS because the Labour Party, for all its differences, were broadly united in their opposition to the coalition's reforms, which are still kind of broadly in place. So given that they oppose those reforms, and those reforms are in place, they're going to look at reforming the reforms. They're not going to say, oh, right, we've changed our mind now, we think they're brilliant. And just a reminder that those reforms introduced in the Cameron era uh, were about the elected government taking more of a back seat and trying to devolve power downwards uh, to empower the patient. That was the idea behind those reforms. And they were uh, a development of the Blair reforms and the Alan Milburn reforms when he was briefly health secretary. Um, Now, there has been a reaction to those reforms, not just in the Labour Party. And by the way, I think the reason why Cameron supported those reforms of the NHS was largely political. He he wasn't a details uh, person in policy terms, and policy didn't greatly interest him. But uh, he was fascinated by the game of politics. And his calculation, I know this because I, I spoke to him about it actually in the build-up to the Andrew Lansley reforms when he was health secretary and so on. He assumed the Blairite wing of the Labour Party would fully support them. And he was taken aback when uh, the likes of even Alan Milburn uh, wrote articles and gave interviews uh, opposing the uh, nature of the coalition's reforms, the scale of them, and so on. And that's when Cameron started looking again, because it didn't work as a politically strategic smart thing to do, because he hadn't split off the Blairite wing of New Labour over it. Um, So... uh, Those reforms were aimed at, which is a perfectly noble objective, of course it is, who's against empowering patients? But these, that is like the term reform, uh, imprecise. How do you empower in a system free at the point of use, uh, so you cannot use a pricing mechanism to empower, Um, how do you empower at that lowest level when the whole thing is financed centrally by central government, uh, partly through taxation, and therefore central government is bound to have an interest in how that money is being spent? These are deep, complicated questions that these banal phrases like empowerment, uh, introducing competition uh, don't really address. So unsurprisingly, um, there is a kind of clamour amongst those in opposition for reform, uh, because they opposed the reforms last time round. And now you get to another issue, which is what form does reform 
take. Now, what I think has happened with uh, uh, Rishi Sunak is he's had a few conversations with Jeremy Hunt uh, about this. Now, Jeremy Hunt, he knows, by the way, Hunt, uh, from his time as health secretary and as chair of the Health Select Committee, that investment is an issue. But he, too, uh, is a fan of a particular kind of reform. It is the Alan Milburn reform. He was in When he was health secretary, he spoke to Alan Milburn and Tony Blair about their version of reform, which was close to, in some respects, uh, what Cameron was trying to do, though they thought Cameron went too far, or at least Alan Milburn uh, did. So what that means, and we've heard... Uh, people within government say this, that they want, uh, and this is what Alan Milburn has said again recently, the key is to give as much power as possible to the managers of local hospitals or uh, a local clearly defined health service area. And that you will hear more of this from Sunak, empowering uh, hospitals, taking power away from the centre and so on. But that is, again, fine on some levels. Of course it is better if you have a brilliant, dynamic, innovative hospital management team uh, taking responsibility for how they deliver and having more freedom to do so. But that's quite a big if. Uh, having that dynamic, innovative hospital management team. So that's problem number one. The second problem is this one of accountability. And this is what became the source of such tension between uh, Brown and Blair over Blair's original plans for uh, NHS reform, uh, in that Blair and Milburn wanted to give hospitals the right, basically, to make all the calls, including how they uh, ran the financial side of their hospitals, which raised the question, you might remember it, you'll all be too young to actually, seems like yesterday to me, it was really intense at the time. Brown and his lot, you know, his entourage posed the question, are we going to let hospitals go bust? If we're going to give them this power uh, to of near autonomy, presumably they have the power to go bankrupt. And then Brown would say to Blair, we've just put up taxes to improve the NHS. Are we really going to do that and let hospitals go bust? And what do we do if the hospitals go bust? Um, or are we saying we give them autonomy, but they're not allowed to go bankrupt, so if they behave irresponsibly, they'll be bailed out, in which case they're not really in a sort of financially testing place because the government will always bail them out. And this is why these issues are so complicated. And then you come to the crippling, stifling uh, juxtaposition in which these arguments are kind of contextualised, which is, it was a phrase invented by Tony Blair, partly to torment Gordon Brown, which is reform versus anti-reform. As if, and, and Cameron used it as well, uh, he copied a lot of the phrases from the Blair era, as if there's only one kind of reform. And if you don't back that reform, you are anti-reform 
But as I said, no one is wholly anti-reform. I know literally no one who says, oh, well, this thing should just carry on uh, untested un, you, you, uh, now, as now. Internally, within the NHS, where people are in despair about the blurred lines of accountability and responsibility of the sort of fractured system that emerged from a particular version of reform. Now, what was really interesting uh, in, oh God, I'm going to mention the guy from the jungle again. I know you get worked up when I mention him, but this is in a different context. When um, Matt Hancock was health secretary, um, there was a very interesting sequence. By the way, this was not the first time this has happened. That sort of uh, Boris Johnson who was prime minister then. God, hasn't politics moved so fast? These people are so distant now. One famous for being in the jungle, the other on the after dinner speech circuit, earning a quarter of a million quid a time. Um, Johnson would say to Hancock, "Do this, do that," and Hancock would say, "Well, we can't." And Johnson, "Why can't we?" And he said, "Well, we've given that power away to another body. Um, that was our reform program." And Johnson would say, "We've got to take this power back." And Hancock would say, "Yeah." So then Hancock will give interviews saying uh, the reforms uh, as delivered by that coalition era has led to a system that is too fractured and that some centralization is required. And that for a time was Jeremy Hunt's view when he was chair of the uh, Treasurer of uh, the Health Select Committee. Uh, but I sense that with uh, Sunak, uh, he will move closer to the theoretical Milburn position of reform, which is to try and devolve power. But he won't like it, Sunak, with that treasury balance the books uh, mindset, because in doing so, inevitably, almost by definition, the centre loses control of how the money is being spent. So these things are really challenging. But here are some of the thoughts I have about reform, uh, some of which we have explored in the past, of course, and I know many of you take a different view. It does seem to me that one of the things the coalition created were layers of duplication. So the role of the health secretary, the elected figure, and the head of NHS England uh, is unclear. What, is, what are their distinctive roles? And there is, it seems to me, a level of either duplication or awkward cooperation at best between the health department and NHS England. And um, I kind of, I read a, a, a policy think tank report the other day, which questioned whether NHS England should continue. And I think that is a valid question. Uh, it was very interesting during the pandemic there was never, you remember those Downing Street press conferences, there wasn't a single one in which the health secretary appeared, then of course the jungle man, Hancock, appeared with the head of NHS England, then Simon Stevens. Not once. The reason being that basically their roles were very similar and it posed questions about who was really responsible. Now, the answer became, it seems to me, uh, the government, Hancock, number 10 in its confused, bewildered state, the Treasury. Um, uh, but NHS England 
pulled many of the levers to Johnson's bewilderment because he would never have fully understood the um, reform programme that was implemented in the coalition era. Um, And so I think that is an issue to look at. Sorry, I know we've got many listeners in Scotland. NHS England is an irrelevance to those of you listening to other part from other parts of the UK and the rest of the world. But as a model, uh, it seems to me uh, to be one that is worth revisiting as a reform. Uh, we've talked on this program, uh, program, I kind of forget where I am, uh, on this podcast about um, co-payments. Uh, whether co-payments not only is a means to bring money into the NHS, uh, and some of you question whether it is, uh, and I fully I found those uh, brilliant responses to this discussion really illuminating, but it also changes the dynamic a bit. It, it, it makes the patient uh, more engaged with the levels of responsibility that he or she has in relation to health and how they use a service. Um, I think that's worth looking at, but it will never be so. That is wholly taboo. So the many of you who are opposed to it, I think, can rest assured that won't happen. But that raises the question of how the money does come in. Um, And we've explored this over recent weeks and months. Um, So inevitably, reform is on the agenda at any given time uh, in relation to the NHS. It's not true that it goes off the agenda. The kind of post-coalition prime ministers, health secretaries, NHS England and all the rest of it, obviously try to manage those range of reforms awkwardly because none of them really fully understood the that other word we all love here, consequences of the coalition reforms. Um, so there will be reforms of those reforms, but they there are many routes that can be taken. But we will just hear and read uh, from early 2023, oh, Sunak wants reform, and anyone who's against reform is a sort of um, in the dinosaur age. But I I don't know anyone against reform. That word is uh, too imprecise. There are versions of reform of the NHS, and that's where the debate should be. So, yeah, uh, Wes Streeting, Shadow Health Secretary, uh, of course he's got to uh, focus on... He's not going to just sit there and say everything's fine and say no one is. But it will be interesting to hear in more detail his version of reform, um, as it will others. Uh, But if Rishi Sunak thinks there's a wand called reform that you wave and delivery improves immediately... Um, he is even more overwhelmed and inexperienced uh, than I already know him to be. We all do. He's never been a cabinet minister in charge of a department other than the Treasury. So this is all relatively new to him, as is managing industrial disputes. Um, In some ways, he's doing okay. And I'll look at that in January when we reflect together on the year ahead. Um, but in others, I think he, he his lack of experience of departmental complexities and um, his fiscal conservatism uh, provide a, a dance that will not lead him 
to solutions um, in a way that I gather he assumes they will do so. Anyway, follow that word reform. Um, It's a word, as I say, like the centre ground that will be ubiquitous in coming months. Um, But the imprecision is not only uh, kind of irritating, it's dangerous. It really is. Uh, We need much more precision in uh, political debate. Obviously, in the run-up to an election, uh, evasiveness is unavoidable and part of the art of pre-election politics. But us lot not standing for election, yet anyway, I'm always tempted, personally. Don't know. Well, I know some of you listening are elected or are standing. Well, you're in a different position. You've got to deploy the art of evasion. But the rest of us need to explore these issues. So when post-election a government faces the challenge of reform, uh, it means something uh, more precise than one uh, route towards reform. Anyway, look, thank you. I told you it would be festive fun. And now let's have a look at your questions. So, yeah, just a reminder, it's stevrick14 at iCloud.com. Dot com. Uh, if you want to uh, raise points, uh, put in questions over the uh, festive period. And what I'm going to do, because it is near Christmas, um, if it's okay with you, I've had some brilliant questions all along familiar, similar themes because they reflect on recent podcasts. So I'm just going to choose a few if that's okay with all of you, that represent a much wider selection of uh, views. And the first one is on uh, Tim Bale, the, I always say the legendary Tim Bale, because I mean it, I think he is. Um, He, if you remember last week, had emailed about voices in politics, and that triggered a whole range of thoughts. And it's, uh, you know, as in, uh, is, is an issue for Rishi Sunak, and to some extent, Keir Starmer, the voice the sound of the voice. And I find that very interesting and argue that the voice is a very underestimated element of um, how people are projected in public life, how they project themselves. Um, Anyway, uh, had loads of responses, and I'm going to read uh, a couple out because they're slightly different in perspective. So Andrew Kitchen writes... As I listened to your last episode, I smiled when you talked about Sunak's voice. I think the comment had come in from uh, Professor Tim Bale. A few months ago, someone on Twitter said that Sunak's voice was very similar to the character Will, played by the great Simon Bird in The Inbetweeners. I now can't get that out of my head. He comes across as someone who would request extra calculus homework sheets. Not a vote winner, probably, uh, if that's how he comes across. I must admit that Starmer is someone else who has a voice that's not easy on the ear, as was Ed Miliband. Where are the mellifluous? No, mellifluous. Yeah, mellifluous. Shakespearean actor politicians with voices honed by years of smoking cigars and sipping claret. It's sad to see so few natural orators these 
days. Um, yeah, oh, and Andrew adds he thinks there's an outside chance of an election next year, either because of Conservative Party wars or a sudden improvement in popularity for the Conservatives and a dash to the polls. I don't think that's going to happen, Andrew. I think it's going to be 2020. For uh, because neither of the wars, if they happen, mean the Conservatives won't be in a position to call an election because they're unpopular. Um, and I don't think they'll be ahead in a way that makes an election uh, desirable or feasible for them in 2023. But who knows? 2023 is looming. In terms of, you don't have to have that actually cigar voice where you have a deep, slight kind of throaty voice the product of the cigars and claret um because some of the great orators uh have voices that are not naturally actorly in that way and yet can cast a spell i won't repeat myself listen last week if you didn't hear i gave some examples but a different view uh from uh, nadim khan who says Regarding the point about Rishi Sunak's slightly higher-pitched voice in the context of leadership, I think it should also be considered that a key leadership quality is the ability to flow and be fluent when communicating. Uh, He, Sunak, seems at ease with thinking on his feet. This enables him to sound convincing, even without a deep-set voice. Um... It has uh, helped that his predecessors, Boris Johnson, paused too much and often introduced rather obscure classic references. And two, Liz Truss seemed weak under scrutiny, which meant she didn't know what she was talking about. Now, I think that's a good point. Uh, I, I think Rishi Sunak is a good interviewee and is actually quite good at the soundbite, which is a difficult thing to pull off. You know, he, he's he's a He's a rather ghostly figure most of the time, uh, or has chosen to be so far. Um, but he appears, you know, sometimes giving a 20-second soundbite on uh, some issue or other. And he does it uh, in a way that is 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 fine and, it, it, and doesn't look odd. And you're right, Johnson, it's a myth that he was this great communicator. I know people uh, liked him for a time because of, the, you know, they thought it was a good laugh. Uh, but he was unbelievably hesitant and awkward as a public performer. Uh, he he is fluent. He's more fluent than Theresa May as well. And that is a, a, an advantage in terms of his capacity to appear authoritative. But uh, Tim's point made last week was that the pitch uh, is an issue in terms of his wider capacity to cast a spell. Uh, it is Blair-like his voice, but I argued last week Blair uh, has a voice that is melodious and can cast a spell, and he hasn't got that. It's it's an octave up. Okay, so that was one issue we've been looking at in recent podcasts. And Noah Keat has written in about another. He says, a recent theme of your podcast and political discourse more generally is the sense Britain isn't working. I noticed that, by the way. It is a real theme. Even when we begin on other issues uh it comes back it's a recurring theme this bloody country ain't working if we were to sum up the rock and roll politics 
cooperative. It's kind of that. Nothing is bloody working in this country. You've got to start bloody working. As you know, that that's it, really. Anyway, Noah goes on to say, this can be taken both literally through strike action, but also metaphorically, in the sense infrastructure is failing, crumbling, and not providing the expected service to consumers. Could one of the long-term reasons for this be an inability of politicians to manage balancing the needs of present generations, i.e. the current electorate, against future generations? This can be seen in a multitude of areas, not least housing and energy development. While more housing will benefit future generations, it's in the political interest for politicians to oppose new planning developments as the present generation, their electorate, are against it. Similarly, the famous clip of Nick Clegg opposing nuclear power in 2010 because it wouldn't be operational until 21-22 again highlights short-termism embedded in uh, energy development. How can this be resolved? And Noah uh, wishes us all a wonderful, relaxing Christmas break. Uh, and here's to a better 2023. Thank you, Noah. Have a great Christmas yourself. Yeah, this is one of the great uh, dilemmas of electoral politics, the short term versus the long term. And housing illustrates it more than any other issue, although that Clegg quote is a classic, because here we are now in 2022, completely buggered because of the inability not only to plan in terms of nuclear power, uh, but to even concede, you know, the, Germany has got energy conserved, whereas we don't, we think in such short term cycles, we don't bother with that. And we're the country facing power cuts, even though we are less dependent on Russian energy than Germany, obviously, and some other countries. Uh, the short termism, in, uh, certainly over the last 12 years, um, has been extraordinary, but beyond that as well. Yeah, and I think what has to happen is, as, as I think I mentioned last week, there has to be a resurrection of the, the, the term planning to be seen as a good thing, uh, to plan in a way that generates growth now but then benefits future generations. Uh, house building is, is one example of this, but obviously so is uh, developing alternative forms of energy, which won't happen overnight but can get people into jobs, can develop skills very quickly, which uh, leads to to growth. Uh, but these things need planning for. And if everything is short-termist and the Treasury sell, oh, that's a waste of money, we won't do that, we don't need to do that because energy is cheap at the moment, and instead of looking ahead and planning, um, I'm going to look at when the notion of planning went out of fashion. Uh, obviously, 79 onwards, uh, it kind of went out. And maybe it went out with that 45 government. But uh, uh, planning is uh, essential and can have short-term benefits. But, but you're right, this is a, a real dilemma. And we're not going to get the house building uh, that we need. It, well, they've given up on that already, haven't they? It's one of the uh, early Sunak U-turns. Thank you very much, Noah. Finally, Nigel Bannerman from Brittany in France. Um, and yeah, this is another thing we've been looking at uh, you know, with old uh, Hancock in the jungle and then leaving 
politics and all those Tories suddenly, you know, including young ones saying they're going. Uh, Nigel from Brittany says, my question is about trends in UK politics. Does the increase in the number of current UK senior politicians leaving politics early reflect a decrease in the power and status of the UK in comparison with the US where both recent presidential candidates were over 70? Senior senators and Congress people appear still to stick around as long as they can and even ex-presidents remain actively involved in campaigning. Well, I don't know if if that is the reason, uh, uh, Nigel. The sort of decline in power of the UK, so people just say, "Oh, sod it, I'm I'm leaving." Um, and I don't think it's a good thing that in America it seems to be that the only candidates for presidents can, uh, have to be uh, well over seventy and probably over eighty in some cases in the next presidential election. Although it looks as if Trump won't be there, not that he'll be 80 next time, be close to 80 actually, uh, if he were to stand and win. Um, uh, the would Surely it must be, as uh, to, to revive a Blair term, a third way between the, the US model of people going on into their 80s sometimes um, and the UK model where we get prime ministers in their late 30s, early 40s, them retiring uh, in their kind of late 40s, early 50s, with an ill-defined role in their political futures. And also, these politicians leaving at a relatively early age, the moment it looks that they'll no longer be prominent in a governing party. So I, I just don't know what the answer is in terms of making politics a vocation again where people feel very committed when a party loses see when a party loses an election you can have two mindsets one right i'm going to bugger off and make a load of money um or um which used to be the case of virtually every single prominent politician right i'm gonna there's going to be a huge debate about the future of this party i want to be part of it and lead it um so you know you wither the Tories if they lose next time is a really interesting question. But who will be there to lead it if um, if they all leave? And if Labour lose for the fifth time in a row, um, who are the big figures who are going to make sense of that one um, if, if that were to happen? And if there's a hung parliament, you need really big figures in whoever forms that government to have the energy agility, uh, sense of the past, because you need to look at how other hung parliaments have functioned. Uh, Yeah, and if they all go off to make a ton of money, this will be a huge missing element. But equally, I think some of them should bugger off when they're in their 80s, vacate those seats to people like some of us, maybe. Um, so we become constrained in what we can say in the build-up to the next election. But for the time being, that's not the case. So if it's okay with you, I think we're going to stop now. Uh, but we thank you so much for all your questions. They were fantastic, and they were the kind of themes of them, and I think the ones I've read out kind of reflected it. Or we have a sort of ceremonial 
pre-Christmas farewell. I just want to say to all of you who subscribe to Patreon, thank you so much for doing it. It's been the first year of Patreon and uh, it's been brilliant for me to have that alternative version of rock and roll politics and i'm going to read out we read out the names of the subscribers to thank them so i'm going to thank aileen murphy uh, james singleton uh, richie l caroline morgan uh, sarah corkwell martin fai um yeah uh this week and more to be read out uh, next week so thank you very much and as I say the next bonus podcast series is coming up um, and that will be on the troublemakers in British politics I wonder whether I can include Harry and Meghan that will get the numbers up so that will be in January now it's going to be uh, uh, for those of you who think ah Christmas uh, we need a, a gathering of the cooperative there is going to be a podcast between Christmas and New Year next week, but this is the last one before Christmas. So I just want to say to all of you, I hope you have a fantastic time wherever you are within the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. Uh, let me know what you're cooking and how you're using the time fruitfully this festive period and have a pause from trying to make sense of it all. It's really important that we all have a pause for our own well-being uh god blimey i sound like some sort of psychedelic weirdo anyway look have a brilliant time happy christmas speak to you all next week before new year and yeah thanks so much for tuning in we need to get together soon but do have a break from time to make sense of it all thank you bye bye